For decades, it was a tradition built in rock. Wow. It's the celebration what up, what up, what up? of humanity. Oh my God, it's amazing. The best. It you free and when you dance to it, You know, it got to the point where people wanted real music from real people and real songs from real people. Real people. But somewhere along the way, it became just another casualty of financial restraint. And let's be honest, let's be honest. apathy. Now, now, let's do it. The Mojo Radio Show is bringing it back. Welcome to Rocktober 2016. A 31-day celebration of all things Mojo. From the boardroom to the bedroom. The biggest stars from the stage. Hey guys, this is Malcolm and Joseph from Dead Case. Hi, this is Ivor Davies from My Town. To the theatre. Dr. Charlie Tio, welcome to Rocktober. And the big screen. This is Dave Fletcher from Pirate Life Radio. You listen to the Mojo Radio Show. Plus, all the trimmings you'd expect from the rockingest month on the calendar. Stand by. Rocktober continues. Now. Everybody, welcome to week three of Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. What a fortnight it's been, and we're not going to slow down. We're going to keep the volume pumped way, way up. Another big week of Rocktober. Thank you for joining us. For those people who are getting into the spirit of Rocktober, what do we do here? We just find interesting people that we can talk to who've got their mojo working. We chat to them, extract their opinions, their ideas, their tips, their tools that we can steal, let's face it, plagiarise to put into our own worlds to get our own mojo working. And we are having a good time doing it. We're celebrating the month of October. We call it Rocktober. It's music, it's comedy, it's pieces, everything designed to get your mojo working driving the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. Robbo, welcome to week three, mate. Thank you very much. Another big week coming up. Looking forward to it. Well pumped, yes, I am. Yes, we we've gone from Hollywood to the big stage in rock, and now we're heading to the theatre. But yeah. we will, uh, more on that to come. We do. Now, listen, just quickly, I'm going to take you back to 1992, where you and I were working at Triple M. And down the end of the building, there was a little dark room with a sign on the door that said, do not enter. And there was a guy in there who's a bit of a production legend. Do you remember his name? Tomo. Yeah. I've got a bit of a surprise for you. What? Just just hang on a second. Just have a listen to this. Though four and a half billion years old, think of the Earth as a person who has just turned 46 years of age. The first signs of life don't flower until age 42. Just 12 months ago, dinosaurs burst in and out of existence. Eight months ago, mammals evolved. Four hours ago, man crept out of the cave. And 90 seconds ago, the Industrial Revolution began. In this last minute, man struggled to harness the forces of nature. 20 seconds ago, reached out for global communication. And 10 seconds ago, the electric.
electric guitar was born. Now, as we head toward the third millennium, we celebrate the birth of Rocktober on Triple M. 31 days that'll go down in history. Does that ring any bells? <laughs> I had lunch with the great man last week and he brought along a couple of little surprises I'm going to sprinkle through the next few weeks. <laughs> That's so cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah. That was, uh, in his words, we were talking about that promo over lunch and in his words, it's not exactly his. It was an idea that he heard. Um, but as we talk about on the show, he took it and made his own and turned it into that little gem. But what I love about it is, you know, the days of great production mm. where a producer pours over something and really puts his heart and soul or her heart and soul into creating something. Mm. I don't know, that seems to have gone by the wayside now just for the sake of getting stuff done quickly, repetition, beat the bombs, secret sounds. It's just... yeah. Those days back in the halcyon days of the M's where Tom I would lock himself away for 24 hours, come up with a bit of production genius. Yeah. Uh, it's just so good to bring it back. And I know we're in a little show and, you know, we get a good audience around the world and stuff, but just, like, I think we can take a lot of pride to say that we're, we're having a crack at this whole podcast thing, but I don't think there's anyone anywhere on the planet doing the same production job that you're doing on Rocktober, mate. It really is, uh, it's really special. It's just, it's very touching. Yeah, we're not trying to change the world, just our little part of it, I think, aren't we? Oh, I wouldn't mind if we could change part of the world. <laughs> <laughs> that's not, let's not put a ceiling over ourselves. That's right, I'm putting limitations on us, aren't I? Speaking of which, I've got something for you as well. Go! <laughs> this is our 101st episode of the Mojo Radio Show. Now I know why you turned up in your underwear. Did, did someone tell you this was a pants down party or something? Is that what's going on? No, no, this is my... Uh, this you can is... put your pants back on now, mate. No, no, this is my uh, <laughs> my shout-out to Flea from the Red Hot Chili <laughs> <laughs> But I can't play bass, so I'm playing this pr- pretty skeky old little thing that I stole from my little girl. Well, because you couldn't find your gazoo. But anyway... <laughs> All I wanted to say is, well done, Robbo. 101 episodes, yeah. brilliant production, mate. Good job. And uh, to all our listeners, if you've sent a shout-out, if you've sent us a note, if you've said something to us in the street or caught up with us when I've done a gig or something, you've said, well done, guys. I love mm. the show. It means a lot to us. We, we've poured a lot into it in cash, time, angst. <laughs> yeah, tears. <laughs> 101 uh, is you know quite an accomplishment. It's uh, it's not the be all end all, to be honest. No, we forgot that it was our one hundredth <laughs> last week with Marco. We're such overachievers. Everybody celebrates one hundreds. Nobody celebrates one hundred and one. So there you go. That's right. Exactly. Well done to you too, mate. We've done. We've come a long way. Thank I think. You. Hell yeah. Let's, uh, before we rock into the theatre mm. with our uh, brain surgeon guest today, what yeah. have you got from the Rocktober comedy oh, Look, vibes? I reckon let's start with a bit of a laugh. There's a, uh, a, a, an English comedian called Peter Kay who I'd be honest I hadn't heard of until I came across this little piece, but um, I thought this was very Rocktober. It's, it's obviously comedy, um, but it also revolves around misheard song lyrics and it had me in stitches. You're all about karaoke. When you're singing on a karaoke, you haven't got a clue that those were words. I was singing um, Take That Back for Good. Wash your back. Wash your back. Wash your back. Want your back? What's this? Want your back? I've been singing Wash your back 15 years. It's only when you go on a karaoke and you see lyrics, that's what they're supposed to be singing. You know that song, We Are Family? For years I thought they were singing, 
just let me staple the vicar. Right? Who's right and who's wrong here? Listen. Just let me staple the vicar. We're giving love in a femidon. Duffy, the Welsh songstress. Last three years, I thought that poor cow were begging me for birdseed. Birdseed. Apparently, according to Michael, your burgers are the best. And then burger vans. You know they have at Funfers and doing steak Canadians and hot dogs. Speaking of hot dogs. I believe the hot dogs go on. got a bit of rivalry here, Michael. <laughs> Celine's peddling hot dogs. It's on his patch. <laughs> Meanwhile, Katie Lang's singing about arseholes. <laughs> I don't waste my evenings. He'll never born you. I swear to God, born you. <laughs> Bobby Gentry, Phil, listen. Phil, I've sang that it cow, my mum. Huh? Every time I think of it, I piss myself. I can't believe you kiss your cock at night. Hey guys, this is John Karabi from the Dead Daisies. It's Rocktober on Mojo Radio. Turn it up, kids. See you soon. Now cuts like a knife. 
So now we're suitably in the right frame of mind, we should talk about our minds. Well, we should. And ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to my brain surgeon. And the reason I say that, Robbo, is because whenever this guy rings me on my mobile, he goes, hello, Gary, son, it's your brain surgeon. Call me. (laughs) I always ring him back and say, I hope I never, ever have to make that call to say, Mm. I need your help. But there are people all over the world who are making that call every day. Dr. Charlie Teo or Dr. Charles Teo is one of the greatest brain surgeons in the world. Half of the people that he works with and around love him. It's fair to say the other half don't like him. Mm. And he fronts up every day. And when Charlie has a great day, man, i got to tell you, it's a great day. And when he has a bad day, it's a day that you and I will never, ever know how bad it is. Yeah. He is saving lives. He is enriching lives. He is making a difference. He is raising money to put an end to this horrible thing called brain cancer. And what I love about Charlie is his discipline, his approach. He's a really good guy. I've done the rounds of his hospital after he's done surgery to to see how he deals with patients. And he's a force of nature that Mother Nature has sent to us. And Mm. we are delighted to have him here on the show as part of Rocktober from the theatre. Dr. Charlie Teo, <laughs> welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thank you very much. Nice to have you on the show. In fact, we've been trying to get you on for quite a while now, but you have been doing a lot of travel, a lot of international work. And for our listeners from around the globe who may not be familiar with you, um, how how do you describe what you do day to day, Charlie? Like, what what is it you do? Uh, well, if I described it, it would sound sort of like, uh, very daunting, but in fact, it is my job, and uh, so I, it is sort of something that I've got very used to. But I guess what I do is operate on brain cancers and brain tumors that no one else uh, will tackle. It's not a reputation I set out to get, and it's actually not one that I'd like to sort of nurture. But the bottom line is that uh, I often ask people who have been uh, had surgery, uh, sort of uh, less than optimal surgery elsewhere. I say, why didn't why didn't you come and see me? In, you know, when you first were diagnosed, and they say, well, we thought you only do difficult brain tumours. So, <laughs> so I uh, have this terrible reputation now just doing difficult brain tumours. So, uh, yeah, they come from all around the world, and I travel all around the world to do them, and they're very, very challenging tumours. It hasn't been an easy road for you, has it, to get to where you are today? Well, Gary, look, I hate to say it, but it hasn't been an easy road, and it still isn't an easy road. It's, uh, mm. I would dare to say that it's actually still probably a little bit worse than it was even 10 years ago, 15 years ago. It's uh, it, it's sad, but unfortunately it's true. You're talked about as being a medical maverick. And I want to dig into the road you've been on, the road you're on now, and what your fellow specialists say about you. I'm curious of the word maverick, which I've seen and heard mentioned a lot, a lot around, you know, around the traps about you. What, what does it mean in your mind to be a maverick, Charlie? How, how does that, a medical maverick, how does that sit with you? Well, I think the term has negative connotations. And I used to think that a maverick was someone who just threw caution to the wind and, uh, mm. you know, was almost almost had too much hubris and uh, verging on arrogance and uh, purposely swung against the tide, even if it wasn't the right thing to do. I just don't know. It, it had some negative connotations for me, but... Given the interactions and the, uh, I don't know, I guess the attitudes of the conservative medical fraternity, 
I guess anyone who's willing to step outside uh, the square or to challenge the status quo would be considered a maverick in, in our field. Uh, so it has, I think it has different connotations when it comes to the medical fraternity. I hope now that when someone calls me a maverick in, in medicine, it's almost complimentary because I'd hate to be one of those conservative doctors who didn't push the envelope and didn't challenge the status quo. I, I wouldn't want to be like that. I was actually going to say, wouldn't that be part of the challenge of being a doctor, especially in your situation as pushing the boundaries? Oh, my God, Robert, you'd think so. I mean, you know, if you don't challenge and if you don't uh, try and change things, then we'd be stuck in the, you know, the 18th century when medicine yeah. and surgery first started. So I, I can't see why someone like me should be labelled a maverick. I mean, all doctors should be challenging and uh, the status quo and trying to do different things and, mm. and uh, you know, getting outside their comfort zone. Mm. But the, the situation today, Charlie, seems to be that if, a specialist is faced with a challenge. Going back to being at uni or college, you're taught to review the evidence, check the data, um, consult your, your fellow specialists around you. And from that, you make a decision. But you've got a different view. You've got a different approach, haven't you? Yes. And, you know, again, I don't, I don't want to appear like a maverick in, tr- in the true sense. I mean, all those things are worthy things to do when you're assessing mm. patients and how to give that patient the right information. I mean, it is good to say, listen, you know, this has been done a hundred times before and it's only been successful in 5% of cases. Or, you know, I've consulted with my colleagues and none of them think that I should be doing this operation. I think that's reasonable to tell your patients that. But then the next step is to say, okay, but what do you want? You know, it's all about risk uh, propensity and risk... Uh, you know, what people are willing to, to risk. And if, if, you know, if someone said to me, your child's going to die and there's an operation that carries only a 1% chance of working, uh, I mean, it's, it's up to the, the person, the parent or the patient themselves to actually make that call, I would have thought. And, and that's all I do. Now, the only thing I do is uh, I, I give them the evidence and I... And you know, I, I tell them, look, my colleagues are very much against me doing this, but, uh, but in my opinion, uh, I, c- I can do it and I'm willing to offer it. What do you think? And if they say, absolutely no way, then I'm not going to force them to have the operation. But if they go, yes, please, we, we want to take that 1% chance. We do understand the risk involved. We do understand that you give no guarantees, uh, but uh, we are willing to take that risk, then you know, then I go for it. And, and you know, the, the proof is the eating of the pudding. And, you know, I would not be around. I wouldn't have survived 30 years in this game if every one of those patients did poorly. But the fact is that most of those patients do well. Uh, and by well, I don't mean I save their lives. I, you know, I extend survival times. I uh, improve quality of life. Uh, and sometimes I cure but the bottom line is that uh, most patients uh, are very, very happy with the outcome. And you've, you've had a 1% situation, haven't you? I mean, you tell the story of a little girl where you had 99% certainty or your, your fellow specialist had a 99% certainty in one direction, but you, had, you just had a feeling in the back of your mind that 1% turned out to be the difference between that little girl living and dying, wasn't it? Yeah, and I would even contend that it was probably less than 1%. I mean, you know, I, I chose the 1% figure because some people say that the definition of a futile operation is where the chance of outcome is less than 1%. So, you know, I just randomly chose that 1% figure. But, you know, I, 
uh, I had never operated on a patient like her before. I don't, you know, I really didn't want to operate. And my inherent gut feeling was that uh, it was going to go poorly. Uh, I, in fact, tried to talk the parents out of surgery in a sort of very subtle way. Uh, but they were adamant and they were, they were willing to give it a go. I, you know, like I say, I would contend that the risk there was probably a 99.9% risk that things were going to go very badly. And there may be a one in a thousand chance that it was going to go well. And she just, I mean, they made the call. I promise you, it really wasn't me. I'd like to say that it was uh, me and all my experience and my assessment of the x-rays and everything, but it really wasn't. It was their call and uh, they, you know, who dares wins? And they won big time. I mean, you know, they won the lottery because, uh, you know, she's cured. It turned out to be a benign tumor. I thought it was malignant. So did everyone else. It turned out to be surgically resectable. I didn't think it was going to be, and it did, and it was. And uh, I thought the outcome, even if I did get it out, was going to be very poor, uh, where she was going to be neurologically devastated or certainly severely affected. And uh, she's essentially normal. So, wow. <laughs> it was weird. Wow. What's your lesson from that, Charlie? You, you talk about that. I've seen you speak of it at TEDx, and people can see that on YouTube. What what's the takeout for you when you reflect back on that and you think about that one percent, ninety nine percent of people, including yourself, may have had a view, but there was something in the back of your mind told you yeah. that it was worth having a crack. What what do you take from that now that we can apply to our own personal lives? To apply it to non medical situations, I guess it's one of those you know dictums in life, and that is that uh, always maintain hope because uh, I mean it's hope that gets us through the day, and it's hope that. Uh, makes us believe we're going to be alive at the end of the day or waking up the next morning and it's hope that, uh, that you know, there'll be peace in the world one day and there's hope that the planet's going to survive. So, you know, I mean, when the odds are stacked against you uh, and you maintain hope, then, you know, that's what makes the world go around, I guess. And, you know, I think you can take that lesson and translate it to, uh, mm. to the, the big picture, the whole world. Uh, we all have to maintain hope. And that TEDx talk was a talk, I guess, a medical talk, but really I wanted it to be a talk to the world to say, mm. listen, uh, you know, when you think things are all bad, just maintain your hope. There's no such thing as false hope. Is there a difference, Charlie? Let's just camp out there for a second. Is there a difference between hope and false hope? You know, I don't think there's such a thing as false hope. Mm. There's a thing such as false promises and uh, unrealistic expectations uh, but no, 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 there's no such thing as false hope. There's either hope or no hope. It's, it, I think it's fair to say, Charlie, you've just made Robbo's day because each day when he walks down to the corner store to get a packet of Tim Tams, he lives in hope <laughs> that there still will be one packet on the shelf that he can bring back to the studio. There's no false hope about it. It's just mm. complete. He's, I mean, the guy uh, is in the positive lane. I thought you were going to say that Robbo's got the hope that those Tim Tams will not add any sort of fat to his, to his hips. That's right. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that's Volto. <that's bold> <laughs> we just cleared I'm that right up. And nothing bad's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually working on my own medical theory, Charlie. I'm actually working on the theory that Tim Tams cure Crohn's disease. Well, if you've got Crohn's, do you have? You don't have Crohn's disease. I do have Crohn's disease. Yes. Uh, well, I I can tell you a person to see who will cure you, and I I can almost guarantee it. Really? Well, fine. Give me his uh, give me his we name on there. That. We can talk about that later. Yeah, let's talk about that later. What we're talking about, and what we're talking about, I guess, is thinking outside the square yeah. and, uh, you know, so, so for years and years we've thought that Crohn's disease is an autoimmune disease. You've got to try and suppress the immune system and that way you'll suppress the inflammation of Crohn's disease. So mm. 
they treat Crohn's disease patients with uh, immunosuppressants and mm. sometimes even strong immunosuppressants like methotrexate and mm. uh, steroids and stuff. Mm. But in fact, what if Crohn's disease was something different, similar to ulcers? We used to think that ulcers were stress and uh, acid-related, but it turned out to be a bug called Helicobacter. Mm. What if Crohn's disease is actually nothing to do with the immune system and autoimmune disease and had something to do with a, uh, a bug in your uh, a gut or, yep. or an imbalance in your microbiome, in mm. other words, your gut flora? Mm. And there's a, there's a chap in Sydney, I'll tell you his name, he's just a brilliant guy, Professor Tom Barodi. And he was uh, labelled as a charlatan by the head of his, uh, of his uh, college. So the, the head of the College of Gastroenterologists on radio several decades ago called Tom Barodi a uh, charlatan for wow. considering that diseases could be cured and treated by altering the microbiome. <laughs> and thankfully, uh, Thomas survived the onslaught and now is, is lauded as a pioneer in this uh, whole uh, space of uh, changing the microbiome and the importance of your gut flora. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he gives people like me strength because, you know, I've been widely criticized and they've done things like taken out advertisements in the Australian newspaper against me and they've tried to destroy me and get me deregistered. And I fought and fought and fought. And sometimes you just think, oh, God, is it worth it? Yeah. And maybe I should just, you know, swim with the tide and and walk with their beat and become mainstream. But people like Tom Brody just uh, give me strength that, you know, there is, a, there is a, a right and a wrong in the world and, and eventually the rights sort of prevail. And it's interesting, you know, too, you don't have to dig too deep to realise that this stuff that he's talking about and, and, and alternative medicine in general, there, there, there actually is something to it. I mean, you know, we're, Gary and I are hacks, but we talk to people who know what they're talking about on this show and who are doing research and all that sort of stuff. And more and more you're hearing how much we should be going back to the old thinking and or the older thinking in terms of bacteria and all that sort oh, of absolutely. stuff. absolutely. When you think, you think what we do to cancer patients, for example, you know, the poor old cancer, but we... We know that cancer has something to do with your immune system. No one disputes that anymore mm. uh, because we produce cancer cells every day by the thousands and we destroy them uh, or by our immune system recognizing those cells as foreign. Mm. So it's got to have something to do with our immune system. Yet every cancer treatment that I can talk about right now uh, depresses your immune system, steroids, right. stress, surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, they all uh, immunosuppressants. So what in the hell are we doing? Uh, and thank God our scientists are now starting to realize that maybe we should be boosting the immune system and hence uh, many of the different immunotherapies that are coming, uh, coming onto the scene. But, you know, we, uh, you know, I think we need to rethink some of the things that we do to our patients. I'm just going to go back to um, Professor Tom Barodi there for a second, who is actually, I don't know if you know, Charlie, he's a big fan of the show. He, uh, he listens to the Mojo <laughs> radio show. It doesn't, honestly, when he's not talking about Crohn's, he's always talking about the show. Big shout out to uh, we call him Big Tom, <laughs> yeah, Big Tom. Tommy, <laughs> Tommy, Big Tommy, Big Tommy B. We call him. Um, I have read stories about Professor Charles Teo, and they they call you reckless, they call you dangerous. I know you as you know a, a guy who just thinks differently, saves lives, makes a difference. How does Charlie handle the naysayers? So you get home at night, you take inspiration from. The big Tommy, big Tommy B. You guys are too funny. <laughs> what is this a comment segment or is this? Oh, no, we try hard. <laughs> we, try. <laughs> we don't take ourselves too serious, though, Charlie. No, or, or the show. <laughs> um, 
How do you deal with naysayers, Charlie? I've known you for a long time now. You keep backing up day after day, but you've got half the population or half of your fellows going, he's reckless and dangerous. The other half going, this guy's great. We love him. We've got admiration for him. Australia's most trusted man, a couple of years running. How do you back up, mate? How do you, what's, what, how do you get this backbone? First of all, if I could correct you, it's not half the pop, uh, medical population supporting me. It's like less than 1% of the medical population would support me. I recently climbed Kilimanjaro to raise money for my foundation, and uh, 12 of the people who came along had to pay $100,000 to come, so they're very, very impressive, generous, uh, good people. And every one of them, bar none, had been spoken to by their medical colleagues and friends and told that uh, not to do it because of various reasons. Charlie Teo's into money. Charlie Teo's nothing but a uh, self-promoter. Charlie Teo is he's, uh, this and that, and he's not a nice person. And he's, uh, one person said that I was very commercial. And these were all doctors, uh, either their GPs or their friends or dinner party colleagues, but all doctors telling them, how bad a person I was. So, you know, unfortunately, Gary, it's not, uh, you know, half them supporting me, half them not. It's like crazy the amount of animosity that I've generated amongst my colleagues. So how do I handle it? Well, you know, occasionally you meet someone who actually does support you, and that really helps. I have a great family who support me, and that helps. I have great uh, staff and my team who I've gathered around me and they, they give me strength. And I hate to say this, but when I go to America and Singapore where doctors refer patients to me, they ask me for my opinion, they uh, get me to come in and help them with difficult cases, and it gives me strength again and makes me realise that it's just Australia and it's just the fact that uh, you can never be a prophet in your own land. And then I saw a documentary on TV the other day about Peter Norman. And he was uh, Australia's greatest sprinter. You might have to do a fact check on that. But, uh, but anyway, it, it showed that the poor bastard had uh, gone against the fraternity, the IOC and the Australian uh, uh, Olympic Committee by uh, doing something controversial when he won his, uh, won his medal. And from that moment on, they basically blackballed him and uh, he was persona non grata and, and, and even when he was alive for these Australian Sydney Olympics they didn't even have him as part of the uh, Olympic team or Olympic squad or carrying the flag or carrying the, uh, the flame and uh, you know the guy when he was questioned about, uh, about this and the fact that he was completely ignored by the Australian community goes well you know it doesn't really bother me I, I know what I've done I've got good friends I've got good family I'm, I have faith and uh, he wasn't even angry. Uh, I guess it, and I thought to myself, oh my God, he's Australia's Nelson Mandela. Uh, because, you know, the fact is, and I hate to admit this, but uh, I do get angry. I'm not like a Nelson Mandela and I'm not like a Peter Norman. I'm, you know, I'm angry and I just think, and every time it happens to me, I think, God, those bastards. And how dare they say that? They don't even know me. And how dare they treat my patients like that just because they've come to see me. And, and, uh, I don't know. It just makes me angry. Well, mate, if it helps, we um we went out to dinner the other night with a, a whole bunch of mates, and um your name came up around the table, and we started talking about this interview. And I guess there was probably twelve people sitting at the table, and uh, every single one of them to a T had nothing but good things to say about the work that they'd seen you'd been doing and all that sort of stuff. So um hopefully that's the stuff you feed off rather than the bad stuff. I do. I do get strength from that, and the public have been terrific, and 
Um, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure why the public have been so nice to me, but uh, I think it's because they, uh, you know, they don't like bullying and they don't like powerful groups like the College of Surgeons and the medical board uh, sort mm-hmm. of picking on a particular person. So I think they don't like that, and that's why they rally to my cause. But uh, I, I'd like to think it's because they, I mean, you know, I am... I was going to say, I I am a good person. I mean, you know, the bottom line is I do care for my patients. I really care for them. And I I put my soul and my effort into my patients. And I mean, after all, that's what a doctor ought to be doing. I mean, if if your patients aren't paramount and don't come first, you shouldn't be in medicine, I don't think. Well, surely one life saved that should have been lost is worth bucket loads. Yeah, it is. Although there are people out, you know, again, it's it's kind of sad, but there are doctors out there who do lie to their patients and... yeah. And you know, have you know, some people call it hubris, but other, you know, I think it's arrogance. But I don't know. The, yeah, no, we are our own worst enemies. And you know, this whole thing about not taking risk—we're our worst enemies there as well. Because you know, doctors are not good at monitoring their own. Mm. You've heard about all the terrible doctors who have survived the system, like Doctor Death and the Butcher of Beeger and people like that. How in the hell did they get through the system? when the system have been doing nothing but trying to destroy someone like me, and yet someone like them, they don't, they're not even on the radar until they kill, you know, 80 people. Charlie, I want to ask you about discipline because knowing you well, reading a lot about you, you are a very disciplined person. And I saw a quote that said, he can stand and concentrate and pick away at a tumour for as long as it takes. His legs ache his shoulders lock, but like an athlete, he pushes through, ignores the pain until he crosses the finishing line. Where does your discipline come from? Like, what does discipline mean to you and where does it come from? Uh, you know, I think it comes from something negative, believe it or not. And uh, this is going to be a sort of funny little conversation. And I hope no one sort of goes away and takes it on face value. But it goes something like this. You know, my father was a real asshole, and he used to really pick on me. Uh, he used to always hit me and call me a coward. Uh, I'd get picked on at school for being Chinese. I'd come back with a black eye. He'd hit me for not fighting back. I'd go, he'd take me to a, uh, fun fair. I'd vomit and not want to go on the rides. And he'd hit me for being a coward and not want to go on the rides. And I don't know, I've got nothing but terrible memories about him. And, uh, I must say that sometimes I think and I wonder, I hope not, but sometimes I think, well, you know, a lot of my effort has been trying to prove to him my worth and prove to him that I'm not a coward and prove to him that I am actually, you know, a decent sort of uh, person. And uh, so I I think some of it comes from that. Uh, I think some of it comes from my mother telling me to, uh, you know, treat everyone like a member of your own family and sort of, uh, treat people well. So, you know, if I if I had a brain tumour or if my child had a brain tumour, I'd want my surgeon to sort of pick away and not give up. Some of it comes from karate. You know, I, I did karate for many years and that basically mm. just drills discipline into you. Uh, so it's probably multifactorial, you know, some good, some bad. But, uh, yeah, you know, I never give up. I just, just keep going and going and going. And there was one time I was going to give up on Australia. You know, it was after about three or four years. Mm. My colleagues had come down really hard on me. Uh, I'd off, been offered a job for a million dollars in uh, New York as the head of pediatric neurosurgery at Beth Israel. And uh, so I sat the family down. I said, listen, this is all too hard now. It's just, uh, uh, it's beating me. And I'm, uh, what about going back to America? And 
to the credit of my family, my wife, my kids, it was all positive. Yeah, okay, we'll do it. Don't worry, Dad. You know, we'll make the best of it. And uh, and I was just about to go back, and I remember getting in my kayak, paddling around Sydney Harbour, and thinking to myself, well, f- it. Oh, oh shit, sorry about that. I thought, uh, <laughs> don't f- worry about it, mate. It's all good. <laughs> sorry, I thought, uh, bugger it. You know, I. Uh, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to let these guys win. I'm going to persevere and stay here in Australia and sort of uh, make make the make the best of uh, what I've got here. So uh, yeah, that's that's the way I approach all my brain tumors. They're not going to beat me. I'm going to beat them. And and then when you do brain cancer, where unfortunately the disease beats you, not the surgery, but uh, but the uh, tumor comes back again. Uh, that's why I started up the foundation because. Mm. You know, it wasn't good enough just taking the brain tumor out and then watching it come back again. I, I want to, I want to find some way of uh, stopping those tumors coming back again. When Charlie looks at the mirror in the morning, what's the value or the philosophy that you want to pass on to your girls would take into their lives? Do I have to pick one? No, because. Uh, no, there's probably three life's, or four. Life's a packet of Tim Tams, Charlie. I think there's 12. <laughs> well, how many have packed? Robo 14? I think there's the unlucky 13, isn't it? <laughs> uh, okay, okay. So I guess it's the fragility of life. I guess I'd like to teach them that life is very, very precious and it's very short and you've just got to make the most of it while you've got it uh, because you can lose it at any at any stage, any day, any minute. Now, that uh, that again, unfortunately lends itself to someone going, oh, well, that means I'm just going to have fun. I've got to have fun. I've got to be happy. And But then I, I teach them that it's not about that alone. It's also about giving back because that's all part of life. Mm. You know? and it's, it can't be take, 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 take and have fun. And, and that it's a whole lot better to give than receive. You know, there's actually studies to show that. I mean, it's not just a, uh, a, a dictum or a parable they did a study where they gave people a certain amount of money and said go out and spend it and the people who spent it on themselves for something they wanted had instant happiness and the happiness was quite short-lived but the people who gave the money away and or or gave it to someone else their happiness was really prolonged and so it is uh one of the truths about life and that is that uh you know as part of that happiness it's a whole lot better to give than uh, receive and sort of be very charitable and and uh, and loving and kind to your fellow man and and fellow creatures. Speaking of your fellow man, I was given a book, not by you, but by somebody else, uh, a, a book about you called Life in His Hands, the true story of a neurosurgeon and a pianist. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll put a link to the book. I'll tell you a funny story our- about that before you just go on, just to give some humour to your uh, <laughs> listeners. When that book came out, my mum had unfortunately uh, had a stroke and she was a little bit demented. And she goes, uh, a book about a surgeon and a penis? I didn't think you operated on penises. (laughs) (laughs) Technically, you could say that penis surgery is really male brain surgery anyway, couldn't you, surely? (laughs) (laughs) Which one do you think you're operating on? (laughs) Uh, Anyway, sorry about that, but I thought you'd like that. That's a great story. That's gold. Um, Well, the book... The book is written by Susan Wyndham. It is a great read for anybody listening. And the book itself is about a pianist called Aaron McMillan. And it was about the relationship you built with Aaron over time as you struggled with a brain tumour. What's the lesson 
or moment that Aaron left with you, Charlie, that to this day you still call upon for strength or for inspiration or just those moments to get your mojo working? Well, I'm sort of past that stage now, but I guess the one lesson you really should teach other people is that, uh, again, it's that same lesson. It's better to give than to receive. The guy was amazing. At an age where you are most, most males are thinking about themselves, they're thinking about their own uh, masculinity, uh, chasing girls, driving fast cars, uh, ambition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He was thinking about how he could make the world a better place. And because of that, uh, I think he achieved nirvana and achieved a place in the universe way ahead of his time. He was an amazing amazing person i couldn't i couldn't believe it you know at 23 or something he was thinking about oh how am i going to do this and how am i going to bring peace to the world through music and he was always thinking about giving it was a great lesson for people to learn now of course i've learned that after 60 years but uh, he learned it after 20 years which was pretty remarkable charlie you've been known to play abba in the operating theater when you are mm-hmm. working with a patient uh what's your favorite abba track <laughs> thank you for the music. And it's so funny you should ask that because, you know, I was lucky enough to meet Abba. Not many people have done that, but uh, I operated on a little Swedish boy who came out from uh, Stockholm and his surgeon came out with him. And, uh, you know, it was a long operation. He went very, very well, got all the tumour out and it took me uh, like 14 hours. And the neurosurgeon from Sweden was amazed that I listened to ABBA for the entire 14 hours. Really? And so he told, yeah, he, so he told the father, uh, well, I did it in deference to the fact that he was a Swedish kid, so I thought, oh, I should listen to ABBA the whole time. Anyway, <laughs> he told the father that Dr. Theo had listened to ABBA for the entire 14 hours, and it turned out that the father, I think, is the godson or at least a very good friend of Benny. So uh, he organized for me to meet Benny, uh, and when I bet Benny, Benny asked me the same thing. He goes, uh, what's your favorite song? I go, thank you for the music. And we played it. He played it on the piano and I sang it in his studio. So, oh, wow. Uh, there nice. you go. Yeah. yeah, it was one of the highlights of my life. Wow. sing with Abba. Mm. Wow. That is so cool. How do you keep yourself going through 14 hours of surgery? Well, again, look, you know, I, I could stand here and say I'm fantastic and a great athlete, but the bottom line is you do get used to it. Mm. Uh so, you know, when you're doing it every every week, or I don't do a 14-hour operation every week, but I do long operations every week, and, and I've been doing it for 30 years, so you, you, you do actually get used to it. Match fitness. Uh, do, you, do you get so immersed in it, Charlie, you do lose track of the, the, the clock? Like, is it a fact that you are so in your lane, your senses are all firing, you, because you're talking m- millimetres, uh, of, you know, error, error to success. Is it the fact that, do you find that you get in that zone where you do lose track of the time and somebody says it's been 40 oh, yeah. hours, you go, really, it seems like six? No, no, no. The question's a very odd sort of question anyway because there is not one time that I actually look up the clock or I ask what the time is. I, I always ask when the operation's sort of finished and I'm closing up, but uh, but no, no, it's uh, it's total focus, total focus. Uh, nothing else disturbs you. I have white, the music in the background is white music, so I don't hear the conversations. And uh, and bottom line is you are totally in the zone. And uh, so nothing distracts you. The pain, yeah, sure, when you finish, you feel this terrible pain in your back and you feel your bladder's full and you feel hungry. But 
but while you're there, struggling away with the tumour, no, it just uh, those things don't even enter the uh, enter the equation. That's why people go, oh my God, you've just come back from America, and you're going to operate on the same day. Uh, you know, won't you be tired? And it's almost like I look at them as if to say, what? Mm. What a ridiculous question! How could you be tired? <laughs> When the adrenaline's pumping, you've got blood pouring out of someone's head, you know, yeah. their life is just seconds or millimeters away, and there you are struggling to try and keep them alive. Oh, my God. Tiredness doesn't even come into the equation. We've been speaking to a few Olympians over the last few weeks and had lots of conversations about bringing yourself to the moment and being present in the moment and getting yourself in that headspace before they perform. Do you have to do similar to that? Do you have to sort of prepare yourself before a surgery or is it just an automatic thing that you walk in the room and you're right to go? My whole team knows that they can't disturb me. So I guess when I first started, there was just probably two occasions where I hadn't formulated that sort of that getting into the zone thing. And uh, I can remember one of the occasions was when the family, a mother said, I need to speak to Dr. Teo before he operates on my daughter. And I foolishly go, oh, okay. And anyway, she just Mm -hmm. raved on about how I want you to care for my child. And the bottom line was that it distracted me. Mm -hmm. And so uh, from that moment on, in other words, for the last 25 years, uh, I have not let anyone disturb me before the operation. And the staff know that. So sometimes the new fellows from America who come out here, they don't know that sort of... uh, uh, program and so when they uh, when the parent says or when the relative says I want to speak to Dr. Tia they'll come and tell me and uh, I explain to them the reason behind not disturbing me because I go listen if they're not prepared to accept the operation based on the the uh, consultation that we had in my office and they should cancel I'm not going to try and convince them to have the surgery you know five minutes before I operate so uh, leave me alone let me concentrate. I'll, I'll do. I'll do. You know my bit, and uh, they have to do their bit. Mm. What do you go through, Charlie? When, when you are by yourself, and you're putting yourself into the zone, what specifically do you go through? And and the reason for my story is I'm quite fascinated by this because we hear with the Olympics or performers at any level of any sport or category, they talk about being in the zone, being present in the moment. And it wasn't until a couple of weeks ago, Drew Ginn, who's a three-time Olympic gold medalist, and I said to him, you're on the start line in Rio, you're about to compete. How do you bring yourself to that moment? He said, I just put my hand in the water. It's not hot. It's not cold. It's just water. And when you have that sense, you can't help but be in the moment. What do you go through? Is there a process, a system, tips? Yeah, I know what he's talking about, but uh, there's just more to it than when, you see, because the difference between what he's talking about, what I'm talking about, is that he's doing it for his own self. So, sure, I'm sure some of those athletes are doing it not for themselves, but for their loved ones or for their country. But most of them are doing it for themselves. In other words, they have had this goal all their life and they see the, you know, they've got their eye on the prize and the prize is that they want to excel. They want to be the best at their sport and they want to sort of, uh, you know, be number one in the world. See, surgery is different. It's all about the other person. Some of the things I go through is exactly the opposite to that. I sit down, look at the x-rays, I review in my mind, why am I doing this operation? Everyone else has told me I shouldn't. Am I doing it for my own ego? Am I doing it to build my own empire? Am I doing it for financial gain? Am I doing it for, uh, uh, to prove a point? Uh, and if the answer is yes to any of those things, it's wrong. It's 
just so wrong because it should be I'm doing it because you know I'm doing it because I think it's in the best interest of the patient on the table so it's a, it's a different sort of conversation that you have with yourself uh, it's more challenging I think because you know that unilateral sort of aim is it's pretty easy really I want to be the best and the way to be the best is to win this race it's pretty clear cut I would have thought uh, but when you should be doing it for someone else's best interest, then you've got to make sure that it's not in your best interest. So it's, it's, a, bit of a, it's a bit of a different conversation. So I sit there, look at the x-rays. I think, I think to myself, how am I going to approach this? Uh, let me draw on my past experience. Uh, am I doing it for the right reasons? Really, should I be really doing this? Uh, and uh, so I, I challenge myself and I just make sure that I'm doing it all for the right reasons and not for the wrong reasons. So good. That's gold, Robert. Gold. Just Absolute gold. gold. Rocktober gold. It took a while, but I think we finally, <laughs> got, I think we finally got down well, to something you know, worthwhile. We mentioned Tim Tams a while back. That was close to gold. <laughs> that was Keith that was, that was chocolate-coated gold. Chocolate-coated gold. Look, I, I, I do appreciate sport, and I appreciate sport for what it is. So please, I'm not one of those people that say, you know, oh, God, we need that money in science and it shouldn't be going to sport. I mean, I think it's good the way sport brings a country together. Uh, it gives us enjoyment and lightheartedness. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I don't resent sportsmen for the accolades they get and for the money they get, but it should, you know, we should never be compared to sports people because, you know, it's a completely different uh, playing field. And I think that's what I take from that, Charlie. I think the nice thing about our show is that Robbo and I try to get as many points of view to give people as many tips and tools they could use to get their mojo working in and out of work. And I think, you know, I've, I'm doing a speech this afternoon and I'm even hearing you talk about that and, and going through notes. Why am I doing it? What's the outcome I want? What do I want to leave? To, and I'm thinking of all those things, but then when I get to the room, I will call upon Drew's thing to bring the senses to play, to be present in the room. So my take on that is I think it's – you take all those bits, you experiment with them to find out what works best for a professor, maybe different for an Olympian. It could be different for a mum at home who's looking after three children. So, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I, I think That's it's so um, true. I mean, yeah, we all have our different reasons for di doing different things. And I think, you know, the reason I've survived all the uh, naysayers and all the, uh, all the acrimony and all the efforts to get rid of me is because you, I've taken the high road. And I think that's what people should always think mm. about. Take the high road. Just make sure you're doing it for the right reason. That's nice. I've got two, uh, two things before we wrap up, um, Charlie. We talked about cancer. You and I have had a relationship with cancer now for a number of years through the Tour de Cure and the work you do. What's the one thing you wish people knew about cancer? You face it every day. You deal with it, the good, the bad, and the very ugly What's the one thing you wish people knew about cancer that perhaps we don't? Mm. Mm. Uh, I think we've lost Charlie. We've got a cow on the line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's mm. a hard one. The words that ring in my ears are the words from Chris O'Brien, that lovely, lovely man mm. who was my patient. Uh, and Chris said to me, look, Charlie, I've been uh, – in the cancer field for 20 years, I've been dealing with cancer patients, and for the last 20 years, I've done every conceivable thing I can do to try and avoid cancer. Uh, he knew the literature back to front. He used to take selenium. He used to slip, slop, and slap. He used to uh, 
uh, have regular bowel motions. He keep high fiber in his diet. I mean, the guy did everything conceivable to avoid cancer, and yet he got the worst cancer known to mankind. And so the worst thing about saying to people is, I'd, I'd like you to know that you can avoid cancer by keeping a, maintaining a healthy lifestyle is that unfortunately it's not as simple as that. Uh, I get, you know, there is one thing I'd, there is one thing I'd like to say about cancer, and that is that it is a formidable enemy. And as a basic tenet of life, uh, you've got to fight fire with fire. And so my approach to patients is that, uh, you know, this is an aggressive cancer. I think the only way we can beat it is by being aggressive back. And uh, you've got to really, really take the bull by the horns and you, you've got to be proactive and you've got to really gun it if you want to beat cancer. You've got to stay positive. Uh, you've got to seek second opinions. You've got to do things that, you know, get you out of your comfort zone. You've just got to really, really, you know, rally the troops to beat this terrible, terrible enemy. Uh, and I think if we all did that collectively as a society, then we're going to beat it. And by that I mean we need our politicians on board because we need the funding. We need people on board, the public on board, because we need awareness. Uh, we need uh, our scientists on board and we need to and re reward them for their, uh, for their sacrifice. Uh, we need doctors on board. We need good doctors who are going to push the envelope and not accept the status quo. Uh, we need farmer on board uh, to stop ripping us off and, and rip, ripping us off and sort of uh, making money their primary goal. Uh, anyway, we just need the whole of our society on board to beat this terrible, terrible disease. Just while we're there, Charlie, on, on this your specific um, specialty on brain cancer, um, I know you've just said that there's no way of beating it completely, but what would be the one biggest tip you would give people to avoid or to have a chance of avoiding the chance of ending up in your, your office? In my office or a cancer person's office? In a, in a brain surgeon's office. Let, let's talk brain cancer specifically because that's your specialty. What, what would be the biggest tip you could give people? Okay. So let me preempt it by saying we still don't know what causes brain cancer uh, and there's lots and lots of theories. Uh, I guess the number one theory at the moment is electromagnetic radiation and both ionizing and non-ionizing radiation. And I am almost convinced, not quite, the jury is still out, but I'm almost convinced that it does have something to do with the uh, a tremendous amount of radiation that we're exposed to. So to avoid brain cancer, given that we don't know what causes it, but we do speculate that there is this possible cause of exposure to radiation, both ionizing and non-ionizing, my uh, advice to people to keep out of my office would be to try and reduce their exposure to radiation, uh, both ionizing and non-ionizing. And remember, non-ionizing radiation comes in many different shapes and sizes. It comes from the electrical cables in your wall, from your mobile phone, uh, from the electric uh, uh, appliances next to your bed, uh, from the microwave, microwave oven, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's an electromagnetic radiation, the EMR, that possibly uh, may have some uh, uh, etiological uh, component to brain cancer. Uh, and, and, you know, again, I don't know why this controversy because it's not as if we're saying we know, we don't know, uh, and most scientists who are even on the side of the link say they don't know, but 340 scientists who work for the WHO 
uh, and IARC, the International Agency for Cancer Research, have come up and said, listen, there is enough evidence in the literature to call this a potential carcinogen type 2B or 2C. I forget which one it is now, but bottom line is that there is enough literature to make us worry. And that's not me saying it. It's a whole lot of very, very smart, uh, knowing people who have called it a potential carcinogen. So if they're uh, willing to stick their necks out, then I think we should listen and we should, uh, at least until we know, try and limit the amount of radiation that we're exposed to. Yeah. We don't want egg in our faces. No, makes sense to me. Mm. Charlie, um, I know you have got a busy day in front of you and I'm going to let you go. I'm going to finish with a story, my friend. And Peter Pan? This is, yes, this is, uh, <laughs> we'll put on some story music. This is an excerpt from Life in His Hands by Susan Windham. And <laughs> the story is about you when you were a medical student and you were doing cardiothoracic, is that right? Cardiothoracic, is that the right term? Yeah. That's St. Yeah. Vincent's Hospital? Yep. And you were in the theatre with a guy called Mark Shanahan and he was heading a team yep. and he was doing a replacement valve on a patient's heart. The heart was diseased and flaccid and every time Shanahan put a stitch into the tissue, it would tear. In your mind, it said you thought this patient was going to die. But Shanahan wouldn't give up. Eventually, after hours of slippery attempts, he found enough solid flesh to make the stitches hold and the patient survived. You turned to him after the surgery and said, how did you do that? And he said, Charlie, what makes a great surgeon rather than a good surgeon is perseverance. And I, I love that passage because I think that the message we can take for, you know, kids, parents, people in any endeavour is your perseverance for 30 years, my friend, has just been absolutely extraordinary. The people you've saved, the lives you've changed, how you're pushing this thing forward. It's just, it really is something else, mate. So thank you so much for your time uh, to come and join us on the show. It's been absolute gold. Oh, well, totally. it's a great pleasure. And uh, I must say it's a whole lot easier to do an interview when, uh, you know, it's not a hostile environment or a hostile uh, interviewer. So, uh, you know, thank you for your friendship. <laughs> thank you for your support. Robo, we don't know each other as well, but I must say that I really look forward to sharing a Tim Tam with you. Yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> right, I absolutely love Tim Tams. I must say that uh, given that story about perseverance, I can't stop with one. I just have to keep going. Yeah. Until the <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I'm just going to throw this in right at the end just as a, as a quick takeaway. The one thing I love about the show, Charlie, is meeting people who I actually know who walk the talk and – just for the listeners, before we got on the air to start recording, Charlie came in, he was a bit winded and puffed because he'd been doing his push-ups and sit-ups, which even in the book, this book's now probably, I don't know what, 10 years old or so on, it talked about you being disciplined with your exercise and doing it before these long 10 and 14-hour theatre sessions. So, you know, a guy who walks a talk, I love, you're terribly disciplined, you don't drink coffee, you don't drink tea because you want your hands to be solid. And the other thing, Robbo, that listeners should know is I've done the rounds with Charlie in the hospital with Mm. his patients and Mm. seeing him embrace the people, give them hope, give them strength, but he's tough with them. It really, it's, it's something admirable, Charlie. It's not just waffle and talk. You actually walk the talk. And I think it's, um, it's really very, very noble and uh, it's, it's inspirational, mate. Well, thank you very much. I wish some of my colleagues would come do rounds with me. (laughs) (laughs) we can live in hope we can live in hope absolutely yeah and uh a quick shout out to your staff as well uh 
Lane, who is your right-hand person, who I love dearly. She's fantastic. Thanks, Lane, for setting all this up for us. And the other thing, Charlie, that I rang the surgery whilst you were overseas just recently for a friend who needed uh, – she had a, a particular issue with her back and your team were very quick to suggest one of your fellows, and this lady was in a really bad way, had been misdiagnosed. And the minute she sat in your studio there and talked with one of your fellow specialists about her issue, it, she said, immediately I started to feel better and she's now on the road to recovery, mate. So um, to all your team in there, you were away at the time and I spoke to your yes, team no, but and they that, were that, absolutely uh, general, first class. Uh, Again, that general philosophy, surround yourself with good people and make you look better. So, you know, you, you, you've got to surround yourself with a very supportive team who are like-minded and, uh, you know, it can only be a good mm. thing when that happens. Uh, People listening to this will want to know more about you, find out about your foundation, track you down in some way, Charlie. Where do you normally send people who are interested in more information or help? Well, we have two websites. If you want to help me try and find a cure or treatments for brain cancer, it would be most appreciated, and that website is curebraincancer.org.au, so www.curebraincancer.org.au. And if you want to learn more about minimally invasive, uh, innovative neurosurgery, then it's uh, our website, which is neuroendoscopy, all one word, www.neuroendoscopy.info, I-N-F-O. And that gives you uh, 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 an insight into the Centre for Minimally Invasive Neurosurgery. Good on you, mate. Keep up the good work, Charlie. Thanks, Robbo. Fight the good fight, mate. Don't let the bastards win. Don't let the bastards get you down. Yeah, exactly. That's thanks, right. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Gary. It's been a pleasure talking to you. On the Mojo Radio Show. It's Rocktober. This is Dave Fletcher from Pirate Life Radio. You're listening to the Mojo Radio Show. Get it right for Rocktober. Nice to know that uh, not only is Charlie Teo one of the greatest brain surgeons in the world, he's also a Tim Tam aficionado. A pack a day by the sounds of things. <laughs> if you needed someone to look after you, your family or a friend, yeah, he's the guy you call. Who are you going to call? Yeah, exactly. You would want him on speed dial. Yeah. Top, top bloke, top of what he does, terribly disciplined and uh, – yeah, I didn't know he liked his Tim Tams. That's, I know. Uh, there you go. Hello to our, hello to our friends at Tim Tams and Corona. <laughs> Maybe when we catch up for a coffee, I'll bring a pack along we can just share. <laughs> now, speaking of coffee. Yes. To create the Mojo Radio Show Buddha Brew, we've taken some of the finest beans from world centres of religion. From the Middle East, we take coffee from Yemen. We added coffee from India, home of Hinduism and Buddhism. Then we added a touch of Ethiopian coffee from the home of Rastafarians and the birthplace of coffee. And we've packed it up with just the right yin and yang to pass on all the karma that the Dalai Lama intended. The Mojo Radio Show Buddha Brew. Divination through caffeination. To get your hands on this full-bodied spiritual blend, just go to iTunes and leave us a review. Serving instructions. Keep drinking this coffee until you see God. I just want to add one quick thing, folks. Mm. It's a real coffee. And all I'm going to say is it's bloody good. I'm drinking mine right now. <laughs> and so am I. And I've got my MC2 oil in it and yeah. I'm jacked up. I'm all, I'm all jacked up. I'm, <laughs> new. I'm serious. That coffee. Yeah. Now, the backstory is you, you heard last week we put it together with Pete Harrison from Fish River Roasters. It was a bit of a joke and stuff. We put mm. the beans together. But since then, everybody at the roasting house is going, 
actually, this is really good. <laughs> what have we done? Why are we giving this away? <laughs> I've been sampling it to anybody who'll drink it. And yeah. I've got to say the, the unanimous is it's actually a really, really nice coffee. It's not for sale, mm. but if you want to try it, I promise you, you're going to bloody love it. It's a beauty. Just go and leave us a review. Leave a review, get the brew. I'll, I'll let our listeners in on a little bit of the inner sanctum of the Mojo Radio Show. The coffee's actually so good that Gary's old man stole his packet of beans and he doesn't yeah. even own a grinder. Yeah. <laughs> I showed it to him and said, keep drinking this until you got out of rock. And uh, I woke up this morning, went to the coffee machine, like, could he stuck at a kilo? <laughs> and he doesn't even own a grinder, right? No. <laughs> what are you going to do with it? Maybe he's going to rub himself with it. Anyway, all right. <laughs> So two things that go hand in hand on this show, coffee and guitars. <laughs> rock, rock, rock. Indeed. It's a, a, a great Australian invention. So a couple of weeks ago we played King of the North, their track, and it's hard to believe that the sound we played, which is the song you can hear right now, is coming out of just two guys in a band, mm. one guitarist and a drummer. It's an extraordinary sound, but what's what's really captured our imagination and why it's so cool for Rocktober is it covers off a number of things that we talk about, and it's it's an idea, it's putting the idea into practice, it's been successful, it's a brand new innovation, a brand new concept, and Higgsy from King of the North did it because he was solving his own problem, mm. and who knows where this idea could go to, but uh, he's currently on tour in Europe with King of the North, Higgsy's touring. We've got him on the tour bus. Higgsy, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Sounds good. Good to be here. Thanks for having us, boys. Now, we're deep in the middle of Rocktober, and you are actually on tour in Europe at the moment, yeah? Uh, we are, yeah. We've just completed a two-month Australian tour, and um, yeah, now we're doing two months in Europe. The classic blue panel van, is that what we're talking here? No, I've got a big French Renault. <laughs> <laughs> Days of rock and roll have changed, haven't they, Birdie? You know, driving Renaults now. And the, the traditional yeah. band is changing too, Higgs. You just take us through this. You've got, I mean, we just played some of the album on the show. It's a big sound. It's a rocking sound. And yeah. it really is coming out of just you and a drummer. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, correct, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's due to the, the pedal that I created, which... Um, which enables me to um, put one guitar signal in and multiply it three ways. So when I run it to three different amplifiers, it's no different to having three players, like a bass player, a lead guitarist, and a rhythm player. And the pedal has functions that enable me to, like on the record, you can hear when the, all of the three guitars are mixing together. And sometimes when they're separated, like you've actually got a bass part, a, a rhythm guitar part, and the lead guitar part all going around each other. So, um, yeah, when you can do that and then you can sing as well, then you only really need a drummer to um, fill out the sound of a five-piece band, you know. So it was just an idea. It seems to work and people like it. So it's cool. Without going into how it works, you're playing yeah. a single guitar and then that's going into this pedal, which then essentially breaks yeah. up the signal and sends it to three amps. Is that right? Yeah, so it, it sort of gets the signal and it splits it into three different ways and then, um, there's different functions in that that enable me to make like, a simulated bass signal that runs to a bass amp. There's another one that goes through um, other things, you know, like there's a, there's, it's got like an onboard loop pedal which enables me to record while I'm playing. So I'll, you know, record a chorus while I'm singing it. Um, I'm talking about the rhythm guitar part here and then I'll play it back and then I'll solo over it with the lead amp. So it's, it's 
it's like having a lead player suddenly appear on the stage when it's all coming out of the one guitar. So, That's amazing. Um, you know, there'll be sections in songs where people will see me on stage and I'm playing a guitar and it just sounds like a bass. And you, know, you can <laughs> wow. that haven't seen a band for often looking around going, where's the bass player? Where's the other guy? Have you had to change the way you you write or the way you play the guitar to make it work, or it is? It... Yeah, yeah, I had to change the way I wrote to suit the technology, and that's why with the pedal, this is sort of like the second generation of it, the one mm. I'm using at the moment. Mm. And this one has a couple of extra bells and whistles, um, like some mute switches that enable me to switch um, the signal on and off post the loop stage of the, of the pedal. I know that's probably just gone over everyone's heads, but. I'm with you. I'm there. It's given me a couple of um, extra little arranging uh, tools that I can work with with writing the songs. So the songs on this new album um, have a little bit more—I guess depth is a word—but a little, they're a little bit different because of what I can do with the pedal. You invented this brand, brand new innovation, basically in foot pedals. If there was a song we could play that would best represent it, what would it be off the new album? I guess to get you know to, to get the grasp the whole thing that it is just one guitar making all these noises I guess um, there's, there's, yeah, there's a, a plethora of riffs you can choose from on the album but there's one song in particular uh, called Down to the Devil where it turns into a real jam at the end and you, yeah. you listen to it and it sounds like a rhythm guitar a lead guitar and a bass part all playing different parts and, and, it, and it builds um, from the ground up and um, I guess that would be the one to listen to on the album to go well okay that's coming out of one guitar. We've had the album playing here in the studio, Higsey, and I've got to say, it's such an extraordinary sound. Like, it's a very different sound. The only band I can think of in my mind, if somebody said, if you had to describe it, is a band called Kenny Wayne Shepherd, who I was a fan of many, many years ago. Is, yeah, there, yeah. Okay. is there a musical yeah. influence in your mind that sits behind this that is the style of what you're trying to create? Well, look, we do a lot of things because, you know, essentially, like, the riffs that I like and I write, the King of the North, they're all, all blues-based riffs, so um, yeah. it's probably where you're getting you know, that from, and we get Zeppelin, we get Sabbath, we get Raised Against the Machine, we get um, Soundgarden a lot, we get lots of different things, and, and, and essentially what people are sort of hearing are, you know, bluesy-based riffs, and um, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm influenced by all the above, and I, to be honest, I'm just a sucker for a good riff. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> Yeah. Let's be honest. Break it down, fellas. How long have you been working on it? Do you had a product, like a prototype, to take on stage or take the rehearsal room and try? Well, I started having the idea in 2009, and it sort of developed out of me having a, a solo career, if you will. I was sort of just playing in bands and then started playing solo. And then I started sort of trying to create more sound and more sound. I think subconsciously I wanted to play in a band again, but I was just sort of not wanting to have to with anyone else and I just wanted to be out of tour and things like that so this I was tinkering with different things and the sound started evolving into sounding like more people than one person on stage and that's where I sort of got the idea and then when I started to refine it this is back in like 2009 you know um, and then I sort of started the foundations in 2010 and uh, King of the North sort of kicked off in 2011 and um that's when it was sort of, yeah, I refined it to a stage where I was like, I could do something with this now on stage and 
um, and that's developed again since then. And um, I've been working with some great guitar techs um, at home in Melbourne, and um, have helped me get this new pedal to a new stage where it's uh, it's taken the sound and the live show to another level again. Well, mate, we reckon it's uh, we reckon it's super cool. It's and, great. Uh, isn't it? Look forward to seeing you guys live. Um, where should we find out more about the band? And how do punters listening to the show here? Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure if you Google King of the North, um, you know, we're the first bunch of things that come up. You might see the odd thing of Game of Thrones, but um, that's not where we got our name from, by the way. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can get our stuff on all the usual stuff, you know, like you can stream on all the streaming things, you can buy it on iTunes, you can go straight to our website. Um, we've got a, we've got a, we've got a, a very small. Uh, amount of the limited vinyl that we got pressed. You can buy that through our website online. Um, but yeah, just, you know, Facebook, all those types of things. We're always updating. You know, you can jump on Facebook right now and see what we're up to while we're in Europe. And um, we'll be back in summer to uh, to tour Australia again in summertime. So. Well, I reckon it's a... Uh it's a great thing you're doing, mate. I love the fact that it's done as an experiment. All great ideas come from solving your own problem. And then chances are, who knows where this thing could go to. Good luck with the rest of the European tour, mate. And um, we really appreciate you taking the time to drop in on Rocktober. Uh, thanks, 31 days of pure mojo. Rocktober. On the Mojo Radio Show. Always nice to see an Aussie invention hitting the streets, isn't it, eh? Mate, it's awesome. I, I, honestly, I, the album's fantastic if you love to rock. Mm. And I'll put a, a link to the clip, The Mountain, which is their latest single from the album. And the, the film clip's fantastic. The song rocks. It's really worth checking out on YouTube. So I'll put a clip so you can go straight through to it. So, uh, yeah, good stuff. Thanks, Izzy. Mm. In life's journey, one needs a life's journal. So the Mojo Show is testing the crowdfunding waters with the Mojo Show thought-provoking journal. So what are we, Gary, three weeks in now? How's it going? Uh, The journal's going good. We are approaching our target. So people who are experts in the Kickstarter land tell me that we're going pretty good with our pledging. Mm -hmm. I had a guy actually in a gig just recently and uh, he on the spot pledged right in front of me and bought two journals. But actually what I found with Kickstarter, which I'm quite surprised at, is how fewer people actually know how crowd funding works yeah and with it being such a big trend now and definitely into the future in financing mm. innovations projects funding charities funding joint ventures this thing is going to explode I any listener who's not across it either on Kickstarter or Indiegogo it's uh, it's a really interesting platform and I've got to say it's when you get someone who pledges and we've had quite a few pledges come through for the Mojo Journal on Kickstarter when it comes through, it certainly gets your own mojo working. But um, I've got to say, psychologically, there's a lot goes on with Kickstarter, interacting with people, answering questions, expectation. And, of course, then you get a day where you get no pledges and suddenly you think the world's gone to crap. And you <laughs> Everyone hates forgotten. me. You start to panic and, and you've got to drink more coffee. <laughs> it's just, but, uh, no, it's going good so far. But I, I just on journaling, you know, we've... we've had a, an ongoing dialogue with every guest mm. for our 101 episodes on the power of journaling and nine out of ten people we, we speak to would journal and i found just in the spirit of october i found a piece from neil young and he talks about the writing of one of his great songs and why it's so important to get your ideas down i live on a ranch in california i just bought it a while ago from uh, these two lawyers 
and uh, there was an old man living on it. I don't know if you have the things like that here, like uh, foreman on ranches. He's like an old caretaker, takes care of all the cows, fences and everything. So I wrote this song for him. The one thing I will say is if you hear something in your head, immediately stop and pay attention. Get it down, whatever it is. If you can play guitar, play your guitar, play it. Try to remember what it is you hear, especially first thing in the morning, the first thing that you play, the first thing that you hum. Whatever it is, there's a meaning, and you have to respect it came from somewhere, and there's a source that delivers it to you. So if, you, if something comes along that's new and different or something that you recognize as being something that you don't aren't familiar with, you should grab it and keep it and then see if anything comes out of it. One of the greatest songwriters of all time. Yeah, one of the greatest of all time. And he's quite right, you know, and he says, you know, pick up the guitar and do it. And we've talked about it in the music sense. But the other thing is that grabbing your journal, putting pen to paper Mm. is powerful. Mm. And if you don't do that, I guarantee your ideas go in one ear and out the other. So uh, that's the power of it. Look up Kickstarter, folks, if you're interested in it. Back us. We'd appreciate it. Mojo Journal on Kickstarter. Yeah, It's Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. All right, beginning of the show, I was channeling Jeff Thomas. End of the show, I'm channeling Charlie Fox. <laughs> Charlie Fox, one of the great programmers one of the great days back in the day. Absolutely, and a, and a really good jock back in his, own, in his own time as well. But this week, we're going back to our core audience, mate, if we've our play-out song, I'm sorry. We're going, yep. we're going to play a bit of Nirvana. Mm. The, the reason I'm going to play this one is that when Kurt actually first took the song to the band in the studio, they didn't like it. And Connor went, mm, not sure that's, that's pretty good, Kurt. So what, Kurt, what did Kurt do? He sat them down and made them play the riff for an hour and a half and noodle around with it until they came up with the riff that we all know and love today, which would be this one. And I reckon that's the way we get out of the show this week. We're out.
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.